Good morning. How's everybody doing? All right. I got a bunch of greats and one peachy and then a lot of silence. A bunch of Norwegians, Scandinavians up here. <clears throat> um, I, I, I'm assuming other people have had this experience. Uh, I certainly have. And I think it may be particular to uh, my generation, but I don't know. You can tell me if this is, makes sense or not. Uh, have you ever thought, hey, I remember watching this movie when I was a kid, and it was a good, wholesome, no language, no bad parts movie. I'm going to sit down and watch it with my children. And you pull it up on Netflix, or you pull it up on whatever, and then like immediately there's all this stuff. And you're like, oh my goodness, did I just like filter all this out? Did my parents let me watch this kind of stuff? Like what in the world? And you're like, oh, I'm sorry kids, we don't say that. And then eventually, you have to have, has anybody had an experience like that where you thought something was like child appropriate and it turned out it was like, oh my goodness, Goonies is not child appropriate. You're just like, what happened? This was just a kid's movie back in the day. I don't know, maybe we were just tougher back when I was a kid and we could just handle all kinds of stuff. But it's like, that is not what I thought it would be. It's not a kid's movie. There's something like that going on with the book of Jonah. We've called it a kid's book and it's not a kid's book. It's not made for children. In fact, the, the goofy thing about it is, is that when we, when we package it, and most of Jonah has been mediated to us through children's media, through Veggie Tales or children's books. That's most of how we know the book of Jonah. And those, those sources kind of cut out the meat and potatoes of what Jonah is all about. There's all this intense um, you know, language and learning going on, all these, these grown-up lessons. And uh, when, we, when we take it in through kids' media, we're just kind of missing kind of the thrust of what Jonah's trying to teach us. I'm going to do a quick recap because we're in the second part of this, and I'll just give you, if you weren't here last week, I'll just give you the, the two-minute version. Uh, we talked about how God had told Jonah to go up to Nineveh, the language up, he used the word go up to Nineveh, and then Jonah immediately went down to Joppa, and then he went down to the ship, and then he went down into the bottom of the ship, and then he went down into the sea. Like he was trying to do exactly the opposite of what God had asked him. He wasn't just disobeying. He was trying to keep himself from being able to obey at all by removing himself totally from the equation. He did not want to volunteer, so he decided to go, uh, you know, a million miles in the other direction. And we asked the question, like, why run? Because you can disobey from your own living room. Why run? And it was because Jonah didn't agree with what God was up to. He didn't agree with what God was doing, so he's like, I'm out of here. I don't even want to have a chance that God could use me to do this because I disagree with what he's doing. Um, and we talked a little bit about like how we often, especially if we grew up in the church, a lot of our lives have been molded around um, biblical truths and we've inherited traditions and habits from our families and from our church families. But it's not necessarily that we're following after God. It's just that our lives have been molded in this way. And when God comes along and said, hey, here's this narrow strip of land in your heart that has been left unconquered. I want you to do something different with your finances. I want you to do something different with your family. I want you to do something different with your life, and we're like, I don't know about that. And what, what that reveals is that we're not really obeying God. We just happen to be walking in the same direction. And what God is looking for is not necessarily obedience, but what obedience represents, and that is the surrender of our hearts. And that's what God was looking for with Jonah, this defiance that Jonah had, had betrayed in his actions. You know how you sometimes just don't trust yourself to make good decisions? 
You think like, I, I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm trying to be good. I don't want to eat ice cream now, but I'm worried like I'll wake up at midnight and I'm going to go get myself a bowl of ice cream. And so in order to prevent future bad decisions, you make a decision now not to have ice cream in the house or to have somebody else eat it all or throw it away or whatever. Jonah's doing that with God. To prevent himself from obeying God, he's trying to remove himself completely from the occasion, the, the, uh, the, the opportunity to obey God. God is looking for surrender. All right, let's jump into part two of this story. And uh, this is one of those historical things. I mean, I know you all know this, but the chapter breaks, the verse breaks, they aren't in the original language. And this is an example of a bad chapter break. Chapter two should start in chapter one, verse 17. So that's where we're going to start, I think. Jonah chapter one, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, this is a twist in the story. I know you guys know this, but the, 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 the first readers, the first hearers of this story, they didn't know this was coming. They're like, oh, Jonah disobeyed God, got chucked overboard. That's what happens when you disobey God. Bad things happen. And then all of a sudden, this fish comes out of nowhere and swallows Jonah. And I know those of you, and maybe this is just my experience, but some of us that grew up around the church, when someone would say, Jonah and the whale, what would we do in a really know-it-all way? Oh, actually, it was a fish. The Bible says it was a fish, you know, and that's how you know those are the true Christians because they know that the Bible actually says fish. Did you know, this is a little fun little tidbit you can slide into your back pocket next time something like that happens, um, ancient Hebrew doesn't have a word for whale. So the way that they would describe a whale is like a big fish. So who knows what it was, right? Just doesn't have a word for it. But we read this part of the story, and if you were, and this took me about... 30 seconds to do a quick Google search for children's books about this book of the Bible, and I want to show you some of the covers. Does anybody see a common theme in the covers of these children's books? It's really about the fish. Jonah's kind of a secondary character, but the fish is really in the starring role. I mean, in some of these, like, it does mention Jonah, but you almost feel like, you know, Jonah's kind of like a, uh, a secondary, like, it's all about the fish. Like, they all have the fish. They all have Jonah and the huge fish, Jonah and the very big fish, Jonah, a big fish tail, and the story of Jonah, by the way, even though the book's named after him. But these, I mean, this is not, I didn't, like, go searching for certain books that made this point. Most of the books that we read that are children's versions of the story are all about the fish. Does anybody remember how many sentences in the Hebrew the fish appears in in the book of Jonah. Two. It appears in a total of three verses and two sentences. But if you were to read children's stories, you'd be like, it's just about this fish. It's like finding Dory, but all in the Old Testament. That's what you would think based on what we're seeing uh, uh, from, from popular uh, media about the, about the story. In some, I mean, it just cracks me up that in some of the titles, Jonah isn't, isn't even mentioned. The author doesn't seem to be interested. The author of Jonah doesn't seem to be interested in the fish very much. He just gives it a little bit. It's not like the book of the Bible is not called Jonah and the Big Fish or Jonah and the Whale. It's about Jonah, and in a few verses, this fish appears. But there's something important about the fish, and we're going to talk about that. But I think we need to do this, and, and I, I debated talking about this, but I think it's important that we as a church or we as people who grew up around the Bible talk about this idea of the fish because for a lot of people, this is a pretty big hang-up in the Bible. They're fine, they're like, I get it, God, all this stuff, and then they come to a story like this and they're just like, I don't know if I can wrap my mind around the idea that this happened and this is true and this is real. So I think it's important 
important for us just to talk about it uh, just a little bit. And the reason that it's uh, such a dilemma for people is because they think, like, if I can't accept that some guy thousands of years ago was swallowed by a whale or a fish, and I can't believe that, then what else can I not believe about the Bible? And then eventually, for some people, it gets them all the way to, like, do I even believe that Jesus rose from the dead? So it's important to talk about, and we're just going to spend a couple minutes kind of trying to um, work our way around this and, and, and give us some, some framework for Christians for what, how we can think a little bit about this. Because some of you may be like, it's totally true. I don't care what anybody else says. I buy it. It's, 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 it's in the Bible. It's fact. Some of you may think like, you know, these are the reasons I kind of struggle with the scriptures. There are things like this that I just have a hard time wrapping my mind around. It's kind of like if you're having a conversation with somebody, a nice conversation with somebody, and then all of a sudden they start talking about like UFOs or, you know, aliens or conspiracy theories, and you're like, whoa, you just seem like a normal person, and now i got to back up and question everything that you said. And it feels like that with Jonah, like, oh, this is a nice story, and all of a sudden there's this weird element, like, what do, what do I do with that? When I was in uh, Bible college, we were taking an apologetics class, and that's the study of trying to prove that the Bible is actually true. And you look at, you know, archaeological evidence and historical evidence. And so we're taking this, this um, apologetics class. And at one point, the teacher in the class uh, brought up an article, an old, old article, about a guy by the name of James Bartley. And according to this article in the New York world, this is a publication that doesn't exist anymore, Mr. Bartley was on a boat called um, the uh, Star of the East that was evidently attacked by a whale. Of course, this is, this is post-Moby Dick, so I'm wondering if Mr. Bartley is, you know, thinking uh, about the book. But attacked by a whale, Bartley's chucked overboard and disappears, and everybody on the ship thinks like, well, he's done for. 36 hours later, the ship comes across a, a dead whale. And this is what they're doing. They're out there whaling. So they grab the whale. They start processing it. And lo and behold, inside the belly of the whale, they find Mr. Bartlett, uh, Bartley alive in the belly of the whale. I'm listening to this in apologetics class, and I'm like, whoa. And so the idea is if, if Mr. Bartley can be swallowed by a whale... And if that's true, then the book of Jonah is true. And if the book of Jonah is true, then the Bible is true. And Jesus actually did rise from the grave. Sort of the thought process there. Couple problems. Couple problems. Number one, it's not true. This story has been debunked many, many, many times. Um, the people on the ship said there's nobody by the name of James Bartley on this ship. Nothing like this ever happened. Didn't happen. Unfortunately, this is still being passed around among Christian circles, Facebook forwards especially, as like, hey, the Bible's true. But this story didn't happen. The story didn't happen. Um, so the story is, is, is debunked. And, and honestly, this has nothing to do with whether or not the book of Jonah is true. It has nothing to do with it. To tie the two together is a little ridiculous, at least in my opinion. And it's in, I think it's important for us to say two things about this. First of all, there are many Bible-believing, Word of God is inspired, Jesus actually rose from the dead Christians who think everything about the book of Jonah is historical fact. It all happened. 
they think that like it's clearly historical fact because the text itself doesn't claim to be anything but historical fact. They think like, hey, Jonah is a historical figure. He's mentioned in other books of the Bible. Well, why would they use a real character? And, and, and even Jonah's father is mentioned by name. So you got a little bit of Jonah's genealogy. I mean, this is all the, the markings of a true story. Jesus talks about Jonah in the Gospels. Jesus brings Jonah up in the Gospels. And then the fish is a put in quotes minor miracle. Like if you're really quibbling about the fish, man, there are so many other things in the Bible you gotta wrap your mind around before you ever get to the book of Jonah. I mean, it's relatively a guy in the belly of a whale or a fish for three days. It's not that big of a deal. There's a bunch bigger things that you have to kind of think about. <clears throat> also, there are many Bible-believing, Word of God is inspired, Jesus actually rose from the dead Christians, who think that there are a number of parable-like elements in the story of Jonah, and think that maybe the author was telling a parable to make a point, just like a pretty famous guy would a few thousand years later, a guy by the name, or a thousand years later by the name of Jesus. And this is why, because everybody in the story behaves in completely unexpected ways. The good guys act poorly, the bad guys act, act like act godly, they pray, they repent. Everybody behaves in a backward way. It's sort of like some of the stories Jesus would tell of like the prodigal son and the good Samaritan. Everybody in Nineveh repents. This giant city that's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, everybody repents from least to the greatest, the text says. Everybody repents. I mean, that doesn't even happen in church. Everybody repents in Nineveh? Maybe. Uh, there is no archaeological evidence to prove that Nineveh was the way that Jonah writes it to be. There's no archaeological evidence supporting. Jonah says, uh, the book of Jonah says it was a three-day journey across Nineveh. Well, we know where Nineveh is, and we know how big it was, and unless these guys just had really short legs, it wouldn't have taken them three days to walk across it. It's possible. Uh, there's no uh, evidence of this in Assyrian history, and there's tons of Assyrian history that we have access to. So could have it happened? Sure, it's possible, but we don't have corroborating evidence from Assyrian history. And then, of course, for people that think it's imperable, the fish. I mean, come on, the fish. And here's the thing, I think, that, that we need to understand is that you and I, we can believe that Jesus Christ came to earth, that he died for our sins, that he rose from the grave, and we can still scratch our heads about a few stories in the Bible. That's okay. We can still wonder about that. Because my, my faith... Is, does not rest on whether James Bartley or Jonah the prophet was inside the belly of a whale for three days. My faith rests on whether or not God became a man and died for my sins and rose again. That's where my faith rests. And the rest I can explore and, and figure out and wonder about. And you can disagree with me and you can agree with me, whatever it is. And I'm not even going to tell you which side of these that I fall on. But whatever it is, like we can, we can just we can worship together and love one another and still have differing opinions about certain things like this. And I think it's important for us as a church family to acknowledge that. Um, and, and I find this incredibly fascinating, but if we're not careful... This can really keep us from the whole point of the book. The fish appears in three verses, two sentences. And if we're not careful, that can just take all the air out of the room. And we miss exactly what the author of the book of Jonah was trying to do. All right, deep breath. So let's go back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Here's what we do need to know about the fish. 
is this author decided that what he is about to write in Jonah chapter 2 has to be bookended with the context that Jonah was in the belly of a fish. He wants us to know that what he's about to write was from evidently inside a fish. That's the circumstances that he wants us to believe this is composed under. And then he's going to end this chapter with Jonah exiting the fish. The Bible actually has the word vomit, and the 10-year-old of me is super happy about that. He's out of the fish. So Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. I'll bet he did. I would too. It's very interesting to me that the text is clear that in chapter 1, Jonah was hesitant to pray to the Lord his God when he's in the boat. But when he's in the belly of the fish, he's very eager to pray to the Lord his God. Have you ever noticed that for you, that sometimes for you, in order for you to do the right thing, it requires a change of scenery? It is amazing to me what being thrown into the middle of an ocean will do for our prayer life. It's funny because I know a lot of us think like, I got to get this together. I got to get my prayer life together. And then something traumatic happens in our lives and all of a sudden we're praying 24-7. And I think God sometimes recognizes that we need a change of scenery in order for, to, for us to get our spiritual lives in shape. And I, I, I know everybody's a little bit different about this, but some of you are very like preventative maintenance type people. You change your oil every 3,000 miles or 2,999. You buy the extended warranty. You rotate your tires. But spiritually, you'll wait until things are falling apart before you do the right thing. Why do we do that? Why do we do that? People will wait until their marriages are crumbling before they get help. People whose spiritual walk is just absolutely on life support and then they'll reach out to somebody Why do we do that? Maybe God just needs to throw us overboard so that we'll realize how dire our situation really is. We just haven't recognized it yet. It's such a feature of our pride to to neglect spiritual things until they're just terrible and it feels like they're almost beyond repair and hopeless. It's just the way we are. It's unfortunate. But God knows what Jonah needs in order to get his prayer life on track. He needs to be thrown overboard. Jonah doesn't know that there's a fish coming. He doesn't know any of the extra story yet. He's just sinking down into the bottom of the ocean. The only upside to this is that there is something about hitting rock bottom that really emphasizes the lessons God has been trying to teach us all along. There's something good about rock bottom, you know what I mean? You're like, oh, now I get it. Okay. You parents, you've recognized this in your children where you've warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them, and they're going to do it anyway. And then they do it, and they come to you and like, why didn't you warn me? And you're just like, I did. But there's something about hitting rock bottom that reinforces the lessons that God has been trying to teach us all along. And I have been there. I have been there. I want you to notice the formatting shift that's about to happen in verse 2. Jonah was praying in the, in the fish. And in verse 2, he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Now notice the way that the text is laid out. Have you ever noticed this in your Bibles as you're reading through? You're like, it just went from, from all these indentations, and why is it all different? Well, the translators are trying to help you understand that what you're reading is now poetry. So we say Jonah prayed in the belly of the fish, but actually what he did, according to the text, was compose poetry in the belly of a fish. This is what you would do, right? If you're in a dire situation, you would immediately go to your, your poetry writing skills, right? No, we'd just be like, please God help. But 
But Jonah, according to the text, writes poetry in the belly of the fish. And I want you to see, this is important. It's important to note the context in which he write, composes this poetry. And it's important to note what he says. He says, verse 2, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. And you get this, you just imagine, this is very visceral. Imagine this, this, this sense of Jonah just sinking to the bottom of the ocean, and he's praying to God, in my distress, You'd pray too. Like you're in the middle of the ocean. There's no hope. There's no nothing. Verse 3, look at what he says. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. Um, a few weeks ago, Bruce preached from Psalm 42, and it had this exact line in Psalm 42, your waves and your breakers swept over me. So Jonah's thinking, he's calling to mind some psalms that he's memorized. Your waves and your breakers. You guys all know what waves are. Do you know what breakers are? When the waves crest and the, get the foam. Uh, living in the upper Midwest, we probably don't have a lot of experience with waves and breakers too much. It's not really a thing. Don't have it a lot at Colby Lake, Carver Lake. You know, you're splashing around in the nice calm water, Mirror Lake up at camp. Um, but if you happen to be around the ocean, if, especially those that you did not grow up around the ocean, and you're like, oh, the Pacific, it's beautiful, and you know, you got your swim trunks on, and you just dash right out in the ocean, and then all of a sudden you realize, whoa, these waves are a lot bigger than I anticipated they would be. And then a wave comes along and knocks you down. Have you ever been in this situation? A wave comes, knocks you down, and then you're like, oh, what's going on? You know, and you're trying to get up, and then another wave knocks you down, and you're trying to catch your breath, and there's another wave. And all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, I am in, literally and figuratively, way over my head. Like, I just can't get my feet under me. I can't catch a breath. Your waves and your breakers are crashing over me. That is what the image Jonah is trying to help us call to mind. And what Jonah says is profound. Listen to this. Jonah is teaching us that the waves and the breakers that are crashing over him and unable to to get his legs under him and unable to get a breath, that that is from God. Your waves and breakers, you hurled me into the depths of the sea. Whoa, wait a second here. What, Jonah, what are, you, what are you saying? Somewhere, modern Western Christianity has developed this idea that we invite God into our lives so that our lives will be safe and comfortable and happy. And that is not the message of Scripture anywhere. That is not the message of Scripture. Certainly not the message of Jonah. And we're shocked and disillusioned when God allows difficulty into our lives. We're like, what is going on, God? Why am I feeling like I can't get my feet under me? Why am I feeling like I can't catch a breath? What's going on? Maybe this will help. Some of you have had... Uh, you remember back to high school and you remember, oh, I have to make sure I get this amount of credits and I have to take this one class and I have, you know, you're balancing all that out. And uh, then you had to fill a slot and you're, you're, you were thinking, man, I've got to add one class. What is the easiest class that I can add? What's the easiest A that I can get? And you've heard rumors about this certain teacher or whatever, or you just assume this certain class, it's gym, it'll be easier, it's whatever, it'll be easy. And you're, what you're wanting is to be able to go into class and kind of goof off, and maybe, you know, uh, maybe they, they give everybody uh, an A or maybe whatever. You're just hoping for an easy grade, you're hoping for whatever it is. It's just not much homework, little to no reading, tests you can pass without studying. You've had a class that you wanted to be like that. And then you got into this class, and evidently this teacher wanted to teach you. And you're like, oh, great. 
Now I have to study. This was supposed to be just like, you know, a goof-off class, and I have to study. The teacher actually wanted you to learn. And at the beginning, you blew a few assignments, and you start, your grades started to slip, and you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to get into Harvard now. Like, oh, and you go to the teacher, and you say, please, please give me, you know, give me a good grade. I promise I will earn it on the next test. Please, you know, bump, at least just bump it up to a C because this D isn't going to work for me or this F isn't going to work. Can you please? And you begged for leniency. Here's the deal. A good teacher might understand that in order for you to get an A next time, you need to get an F this time. A good teacher, a good, gracious, merciful, kind teacher would understand that in order for you to get an A, because you need to learn what it means to dig in and to do the work and to do the homework, they may fail you this time. A good teacher. Here's the thing. A good God, a gracious and loving, and merciful, and kind God may send waves and breakers to crash into your life. God, please give me leniency. I will try harder next time. I will do better next time. And God knows you will not. God knows that that mercy you're asking for isn't just mercy. You're asking to be let off the hook, and God actually wants to shape and transform you. God, in his mercy, will allow trouble into our lives in order to transform us. And let me say this, this is probably even more accurate, certainly for me, maybe for most of us. God will use the trouble that you cause in your own life to shape and transform you. The mess that you made, well, God just saved me from this mess. And God's like, "Mm, (laughs) nope, you got some lessons to learn. God, just forgive my sin. Don't make me confess to anybody. No, it's not how this works, bud. I want to shape your heart. God, just take away my bitterness. Don't make me forgive anybody. Nope, that's not how this works. I want to shape your heart. God, just fix my problems. Don't don't allow me to suffer consequences. Nope, I want to shape your heart. Here's the truth, church. Sometimes, in order to be transformed, we have to be tossed overboard. Sometimes, in order to turn to God, we have to sink beneath the waves. There's just no other path forward. And maybe that's your life. Maybe your life is just like, what is going on? Why is it a mess? Why am I making bad choices? And God's allowing this in his mercy and his grace. But God, don't you love me? Wouldn't you just fix all this for me? It is precisely because God loves you that he doesn't make your comfort his top priority. It's because God loves you. It's because God loved Jonah that he allowed him to be thrown overboard. This is so hard for us to comprehend. Verse 4. That's just the first three verses of this chapter. I mean, Jonah packs a punch, doesn't it? It is good stuff. Is this a kid's book? Yeah, kids can read it. But man, this is good stuff. Jonah chapter 4, or verse 4, chapter 2. He said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. And what he's saying, I will turn to look toward your presence, God. And he's saying, here's, here's where life I've gotten, my choices have gotten me in life. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. What a vivid image. This next line is seaweed was wrapped around my head. I think that's what he's saying. Like, actually, I'm all up and tangled up in seaweed inside this belly of this fish. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, O oh Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, and you just get this image in your mind that Jonah is out of breath, 
There's, there's no more breath. He can't hold it any longer. My life was ebbing away. I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Again, the temple being the, the place of the presence of God. And I, and I prayed, I prayed. And then in verse eight, he says something that seems out of left field. He says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. And you're like, what idols? Where did that come from? What? You were running from God. What do idols have to do with this? This is a uh, notoriously hard text to translate, and there's just been dozens of articles and even books written about this one verse. Uh, essentially what I believe he's saying is that we cling to a thing that we think will save us, whatever it is, idols, whatever it is, but clinging is what you do when you're in trouble. You cling to a, a life preserver when you're sinking in the ocean. If you're about to get in a car accident, you cling to the steering wheel. You cling to those things that you think will save you. And what I think he's essentially saying to us is that you, when you cling to anything, anything other than God, you still have all that hardship in life, but none of the transformation, none of the benefits, none of the upsides, none of the grace of God transforming your heart. You still will have hardship, but none of the good things that come from that. And you see this dynamic all the time, right? Um, I, I, I'm in terms of uh, parenting style, me and Kareen are a little bit different. I'm kind of like, sure, yeah, sounds good. And Kareen's like, uh, maybe don't do that because you could die. You know, those are kind of the, the sort of the dynamic. So I, I know all, all families have this. They have a yes parent and they have a no parent. And depending on the situation, you ask your yes parent, you ask your no parent, you know, depending on what, uh, what you're looking for. And I'm, I'm kind of the, the yes parent. And, but here's the thing about that. I have discovered that the kids find more security and comfort from the no parent. Why is that? Now, kids want, you know, they want to be able, I just want to be able to do whatever I want, but, but kids find more comfort and security from the no parent. And the reason I believe this is true is because the no parent is actually thinking about how this thing might affect their lives, and the yes parent is like, sure, you know, they're distracted, yeah, whatever. But kids do, they love boundaries, and they love rules, they resent rules, but they want that because that brings that sort of security and comfort into their lives. Listen, we serve a God that actually loves us. Therefore, that means he often disciplines us. Because he loves us, he disciplines us. And what, we're, what this verse, I think, is saying is to run from God is to ultimately miss out on his transforming love. To run from God is to miss out. God's not chasing you because he's mad at you. He's chasing you because he loves you. Last, last, uh, last two verses, real quick, we'll wrap this up. Verse nine, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And evidently Jonah got it because in verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited him out onto dry land. Now, Jonah has not figured all the lessons he needs to learn out. If you want to skip ahead and read Jonah chapter 4, Jonah still doesn't get it. But what Jonah is learning is he's learning about God's grace for himself. He's going to struggle with God's grace for other people. But he's learning that God's grace for himself sometimes means God's judgment in his life. And that is ultimately a good thing because it means that God loves us. So join us next week. We're going we're gonna to look at Jonah chapter 3 where Jonah preaches. I mean, I preach some bad sermons, but Jonah preaches the worst sermon I have ever heard of in my life. And still amazing things happen. Let's pray and then we'll be dismissed. 
Father in heaven, we are so grateful to be able to dig into this book. Uh, God, it's just overwhelming to think about the difficulty and trouble in our lives as something that may come from you. Lord, I know we feel like we want to be rescued from it, but I pray that you would help us to understand that those are the things that are shaping us into the image of your Son. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you that our relationship with you is never in question. But Lord, we pray that if we have these, these, these situations in our lives where we're, we're running from you, we're not allowing uh, our hearts to be fully surrendered, Lord, I pray that you would bring waves and breakers into our lives to, to form us. Lord, I know that it's a severe mercy. I know that it is difficult, but I know that it's what's best. And I know that you will do it because you love us. So Lord, as we leave from this place, I pray that we would have our eyes open to a new way of thinking about what's going on in our lives, what you are doing, and how you are showing us your love and your mercy and your grace. Bring us back together soon. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.